The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, and if you would turn to Revelation chapter 3, and let's find this passage rather quickly. Uh, I would like to read the text of this letter to the church at Laodicea once again. And you've heard me read it six or seven times in this series. And this is the last time for a while that we will read about this church. I'm sure we will refer to it often at other times. But the entire letter, we're going to read it one more time this morning. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 14. And unto the angel... Of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." In our study this morning, we continue our discussion of the seventh church of Asia. And I've chosen that we would spend more time with this church because I believe that this, this letter that Christ wrote most closely describes the spiritual condition of churches today. And we've noticed the timeless nature of these seven letters We'll find churches like those represented here across all the spectrum of Christianity. There are some churches that are faithful and they do stand very strongly on the truths of God's word. And these are churches that have grown, have grown up from the seeds of other faithful churches. And these churches in turn will plant seeds that will ensure the survival of the church into future generations. But then there are also churches that are in various stages of decline. And some of them are just barely hanging on. And every year it seems that they surrender to more and more the compromises of the world. And then finally there are churches that are in full apostasy. That is they have completely departed from the world or from the Lord rather so that there is no gospel in that church any longer. And sadly, I believe that there are more of those types of churches in the world today. They represent most of the churches that you see. And these are Laodicean churches that are described in this passage as being a sickening type of church to the Lord. 
Laodicea is the fully apostatized church. That is, they have forsaken the Lord and they've turned their back on Him. They denied His word and they denied His name. And just to give you an idea of a major area that leads to the downfall of a church, we only need to look at a crisis that's happening right now in our country in this very day. And this is what's happened to the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Perhaps some of you have seen it in the news. You probably won't read much about it in the secular news because they don't care. But if you read any types of Christian publications, you may be aware of the problems that are going on at the Moody Bible Institute. The college was originally named for Dwight L. Moody, who was the famous revivalist evangelist of the 19th century. And to many people, he was a hero of Christianity, having preached the gospel worldwide and very impressive with conversions. He lived long before Billy Graham and the era of television. But using those same evangelistic techniques, he held great revivals and thousands attended those revivals. Well, we disagree with his tactics. We dispute the details of his theology. In fact, uh, Moody never claimed that he was a theologian, and I believe that's obvious. We disagree with him, some things about Moody, but we don't dispute the commitment that he had to the Bible as as the infallible Word of God, that he believed that the Word was necessary to the salvation of sinners, and he believed that the Word of God was, was fully sufficient and that it is the very Word that God spoke. And he preached that without reservation. And the Bible, the Bible college that was named after him long stood on that very same principle. And for the past 130 years, the Moody Bible Institute has been known as trustworthy on the infallibility of Scripture. And it's been known as one of the gold standards of evangelicalism. But there's much time that's gone by. And the doctrinal stands of Moody Institute have been compromised. They hired professors who didn't believe in biblical inerrancy. They watered down the curriculum for the college and they wrote new curriculum that was record, uh, required in their courses. Then they allowed a, a liberal professor who supports Planned Parenthood and liberation theology to teach at their school and to host their missions conferences. You might not know very much about liberation theology, but it's very, very dangerous as a missions endeavor. It has its roots in Latin American Roman Catholicism. And its basic tenets are that that salvation comes through social change. It's the intention to, to lift the poor and to elevate the working class to promote political and economic change. And it says that the true church is one that prefers prefers the historically downtrodden and that church doctrine grows out of your perspective on the poor. Now, in some ways, that might sound good, but that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I've just described to you is Christianized socialism that eventually leads to atheism and to communism because that, in fact, is what it is. And I might remind you that socialism and communism are anti-God. They are anti-Christian. And just to add into that, they are anti-American. And you may remember that when you vote for people who are in favor of equalizing economic classes. 
But now imagine that this is the gospel that's being promoted at missions conferences, and there are local pastors that attend these congregations and or these uh, conferences rather, and they come for the purpose of being strengthened in what they believe and being encouraged in how they would present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then imagine that these pastors attend there and students of, of the college that attend there. And what is it then that they take home when they go to their places where their churches are in their local communities? But what they take home with them is a radicalized Christianity. And then when this is preached, the churches become apostate. And so the Moody Bible Institute has been in a crisis. Now the institute is not a church, although they do have a campus church. They are influential in Christianity, and what they do affects generations of young Christians. And Moody's fall on these issues are indicative of churches in our country. That it trickles down to the churches that we find right here in Ronard Park that no longer respect the infallibility of the Bible. And it shows up when churches... In churches where pastors teach that it's possible that you can have a relationship with God, whatever that relationship might look like, but you don't necessarily need Christ. You don't need to repent of your sins. You don't need to trust exclusively in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. But you can be sure of this, that Christ will be your facilitator. That he will come and he will help you. will help you to realize all of your personal goals. But he does not need to be received as the exalted supreme ruler of your life. And so we have to ask the question, where is Christ in relation to that kind of church? He's not on the inside. He's on the outside. Just as we see in verse number 20. He leaves the church because he won't stay where his supreme authority is not recognized. And so is it clear to you why in Berean Baptist Church we emphasize the Bible? And do you understand why I insist that we must continue to read the scriptures and stay in the Bible and preach straight from the Bible? And do you understand why that we don't take our text to study from and to discuss on Sunday mornings. We don't take our text from the newspaper and what's popular for people to believe today. We take what we believe from the Word of God and that's what we preach. And we put the Word of God above everything that we do because if we don't, Christ will not stay in the church. Christ will not be here. He'll be on the outside. And He'll just leave this building that we're in as an empty shell. Then very soon... A false gospel, a fake gospel will overtake us. And we'll begin to go through the motions of Christianity, but without the power of the Holy Spirit. But we'll still call it the power of the Holy Spirit. It won't be, but we would call it that. I want you to listen to this very interesting description of the apostate church. Paul gave it in 2 Timothy 3. He said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness." but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. 
Now, would you say that the modern church loves itself? Is the gospel of me, isn't that the most prevalent gospel that you hear today? The gospel of self-esteem, be the best you can be. Now, perhaps the other problems that are in the list don't readily as appear. But we're talking about lost people. And all of these things that we've just read in that passage, even though you might not see them now, in the apostate church, they are ready to appear. But no, seriously, was the charge that I just read you in verse number 5. It says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. So they act as if they know God, but in all of their self-encouragements, they show that their God is not Jesus Christ. And Paul said, you need to turn away from that kind of church. That is not a church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Well, we've discussed many of the reasons that the church of Laodicea was without Christ. Their wealth, their self-sufficiency, the false gospel. Ultimately, it's the way of the world that insists that we are God because this is what happens when you go into sin. Whenever you commit sin, it's the same as saying, I should have my way. It doesn't really matter what God thinks and what God wants. I should have my way and I should rule my own life. Paul explained that very same problem in the famous Romans passage. After he had alluded to numerous Old Testament texts, he concluded with this. He said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, he started with the statement of universal depravity when he said, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then he proceeded to prove that from old, the Old Testament. And then finally he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so to them, that means that God is inconsequential, that, that His wrath and punishment are not true, and that we are, we're free to do as we please because it's more important that we satisfy self than Him. And that is the brush that paints the church at Laodicea. It's one of self-satisfaction. Look at verse 17 in that third chapter. Jesus said to them, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing. In other words, we are self-satisfied. We're satisfied with the provisions that we have, all that we have gained for ourselves. And like the parable of the man whose crops increased and said that he would tear down his barns and he would build bigger barns, that he would take his solace in the abundance of things that he had accumulated, that would supply his future But God said to him, today, your soul will be required of you. And then, whose will be those things that you have provided? So we see then that God is a bystander in the lives of these people. He may be called on, but it's only to bless their self-made plans. So God becomes their assistant and not their Lord. And that makes Christ outside. So what will he do with a church that rejects him? Well, I would think that with the enormous cost of salvation, a salvation that requires a cross, and one that requires agonizing death, one that requires terrible suffering, that what Christ would do is just throw all of these out without hesitation. And why doesn't he just angrily point towards hell and he says, off you go. And we can read these verses and 
We can look at our neighboring churches somewhat with hatred in our eyes because of what they've done to Christ. But then I have to remind you that we were once all that way. As Paul said, there is none righteous, no, not one. In Ephesians, he said, we were all the children of wrath. And so is there any cause that God shouldn't have immediately cast us away? And if you're honest with yourself and you look at your life, you know your heart and you know that your heart wasn't right and I know my heart wasn't right. And still after knowing what Christ has done for me, I still struggle with sin as you do. But instead of him throwing us off, what do we find in this scripture? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And in verse number 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Why? Why does he take the time? Why does he expend the effort to knock? And it is because if they will repent, he says, I will come inside. Now we remember that Revelation 3 is still in the church age. That he is still working in the church That's going to change when we get to chapter 4, if we were to read there. In chapter 4, the church has gone up. The church has been raptured. And then God will start another part of his eternal plan to deal with sin and to purge the earth. In the first chapter, Christ told John, this is verse 19 in Revelation 1. He says, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Those are the three divisions of the book of Revelation. What you have seen, write what you have seen. That's just the short section that is basically chapter 1. Then he said, write the things that are. And that's chapters 2 and 3, which covers the church age from the first century until Christ returns. Then he said, write the things which are thereafter. And that starts in chapter 4 and then continues through the first half of chapter 22. But he said there, write the things which are. That's the present time that is right now in the church age. And this is the age of the full, free expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's through the commission that God has given the church. And in this time, we have a compassionate Savior who knows our sin. He knows that we deserve hell. He knows who we are. And he does know that there is none righteous, no, not one. And yet this Savior that we have gives us time and space to repent. J.I. Packer wrote, Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. God justified you with his eyes open. Now I know there are times that I'm very hard towards churches that preach a false gospel. And there's a time for that because the word says that we must stand against heresy. Every lie that's told affects a soul that will go to hell. And so yes, I have much contempt for the Joel Osteens and the Joyce Myers and the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens and all of those who are religious hucksters. As the Word of God says, they have only a form of godliness. But I don't want my contempt for the putrid doctrines that they teach to translate into any lack of desire to see them and their followers saved. And I would like nothing better from these evil and seductive men and women of the Word of Faith movement to turn their hearts to Christ and then preach the true gospel to the millions of followers that they have access to. But I also know, and sad to say, 
that without the self-pleasing drivel that they preach, the crowds would soon dry up. Thousands no longer show up when the gospel is about Christ instead of them. Many are called and few are chosen. Isn't that what Christ said? So you don't want to accuse me. Please don't accuse me of hating them and loving only us. Here we are in the Berean Baptist Church. We have the truth of the Word of God. It's just us. We hate everybody else. It's just us. I don't want anybody to accuse me of that. If I preach against same-sex marriage and against transgender activists and against murderous Planned Parenthood, I don't do it because of hate. No, I do it because I want to repeat what God said. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And so we preach Christ to save, not to condemn anyone, because their sins have already condemned them. Jesus said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that's the reason that he's on the outside. He's outside the door at first, but he's out there without anger because now we are in the church age. We're in that expression of the gospel, of that compassionate Savior. Chapter 4 has not come yet. And so his anger is at bay as he pleads with compassion in every letter. In each of the seven letters, there is a plea for repentance. Change and come back and Christ will receive you with open arms. Just look at the letters. Their promises accompanying repentance. He said, you're going to eat of the tree of life. You'll receive hidden manna and given a new name. You will be clothed in white garments. You will live in the new Jerusalem. And then you look at the end of this letter. You will sit with me in my throne. Can you imagine that? The worst of the churches, the one that is in full apostasy, is given this opportunity by the pleading Christ to sit with him in the throne. And do you understand how monumental that is? It means that Christ will take the vilest, wickedest sinners and he will wash away their sins. And the depth of sin doesn't matter because he can bring you up out of those depths. His grace is sufficient. Now if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 1, I want to... For us to remember, as we begin this reading, his conclusion about the universal depravity of man. It came after he established the worst sins in chapter 1. Now we'll just look at a few of the verses. This is just a small sampling from his list. And in Romans 1, verse number 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over... To a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of uh, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I think we can see some layout of sins in the list. Maybe there are some Osteens and some Copelands 
They change the truth of God into a lie. Then there are also sexual deviants in the list. Paul indicates that in verse 28. And he says that continuance in these sins subject the offender to utter rejection that prevents their salvation. And before he's through with this, he will conclude, there is no hope but the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness comes through faith. Now look just over in chapter 3 in verse number 21. Romans three twenty-one. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, the righteousness of God is given to those that believe. It makes no difference if you commit some of the sins that are on this list, or if you commit all of them, Christ will save you from them. Now the evidence of this is found in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now I'd like you to turn there if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul is writing to this Corinthian church that was filled with people that were in all sorts of immorality, Some of the worst things that you can imagine took place in Corinth. And Paul wrote to this church and talks to them about the sins that they had been brought out of. And of course says you ought not to return to those things that you used to do. But notice what he says here beginning in verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There are a lot of sins that Paul mentions there. Maybe you would like to pick out just a few and say, I don't do that, I don't do that, and don't do that. You'll probably find yourself somewhere in that list. We all do. The first thing that we have to note is that all of these sins must be rejected. All of them must be given up. God saves people out of these sins. He doesn't leave them in it. So that would tell me that, yes, homosexuals can change. Because their root condition is caused by sin. And God conquers sin. But, but notice further, the most critical point is that some of these Corinthians lived in the worst sins imaginable. History tells us they did. But then they came to Christ and they were justified and they were sanctified in his name. And they were brought out of those sins. They were saved. And that's the very point that we're trying to describe. That Christ can save from any sin, from all sin, because Christ is the compassionate Savior. He will save. Now if we look at this text, and we see the despised apostate church, still we know Christ will save them. How do we know this? Because we're still living in the church age. We're still living in that gospel dispensation. So there's hope. The Word of God says for anyone, there is hope. Jesus saves. And let's don't say that unless we truly do believe it. 
Now we have a duty to be towards the apostate churches just as Christ is. He hates their doctrine, but he will change people who believe in him. He can remove that heart of stone. He can make the heart tender to the gospel. And so our duty is to oppose the doctrine of the apostate church with all the, with all the force, with all the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us, but then to pray for the salvation of their souls. Now let's zero in on our text. That's introduction. We're looking at the last of the letter after Jesus diagnosed their true spiritual condition. They thought they were fine, as the apostate church thinks they are fine, but they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I've already shown you all the metaphors for this in the previous messages. The metaphors indicate a lost condition. We're not talking about saved, backslidden people. These are wretched, exceedingly sinful. They're miserable, that is, hopelessly lost without true satisfaction. They're poor, that is, they're spiritually bankrupt. And they're blind, their eyes are closed to the gospel of Christ. They're naked, that means they're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I don't think that there is a way that we can spin this into saying, well, these are saved people, they're just backslidden. Oh, like many who profess to be believers, but they're only backslidden when we really find the true condition is their loss without Christ. So this looks like the definition of a lost church. Eight weeks ago, in the first message, I said that this letter presents problems in theology and ecclesiology. There are problems with theology. Who is Christ? And that's in turmoil in verse number 14. Ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church. That we find is in turmoil in verses 19 and 20. Is this a true church or is it not? There is turmoil in soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. So we find there's turmoil throughout this letter. And I give you these terms, ecclesiology, soteriology, and of course theology, because if you're determined to study the Bible, you're going to encounter these terms as outside sources describe the doctrines that you need to know. So what are the problems in the text concerning the ecclesiology? That's mainly what we're concerned with right now. How do we determine whether these people are lost or are they backslidden? Well, let's identify this, the problems. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And so someone would say, well, oh, aha, that proves that they're saved people. Jesus is exercising discipline to rebuke and chasten them and bring them back. And so this would mean then that these are the children of God and all they've done, they've just wandered off and now he's trying to get them back. And so the repentance that he calls for is what we would find in 1 John 1 9, that is, confession of sin to be cleansed from unrighteousness. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, First John 1, 9 is not a salvation verse. That's a verse about Christians that find themselves mired in sin. And so it's a verse about restoration to fellowship, not about salvation. So how are we going to straighten that out when we've just read in verse number 17, there are very clear indicators that are, they are lost. That this is not talking about repentance for fellowship. Well, I think that we would go to the famous verse of John 3.16. Where it says that God so 
love the world. And we would ask, does that refer to the world in belief or in unbelief? Well, of course, it refers to the world in unbelief. God sent his son that those who change from that unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. The second avenue of approach is to look at the word chasten. This is a word that implies discipline and it is often used in scripture in the sense to punish. How does God punish? In John 3.16, Jesus said that those who don't believe will perish. And I don't think that we're going to argue that perish means anything other than spending eternity in hell. I mean, that's clear from many other scriptures. So we don't find anything here that leads us away from our earlier conclusion that calling them a church is anything other than just a generic reference to people that are operating under the guise of the true Christian church, but they are in fact lost people. And so we conclude, and I think rightly so, that this is a church that is full of apostasy. The scripture says that when someone has known the way of truth, when they have been instructed in it, when they have been told about it, and when they profess it, if they turn away from it, there is no other way for them to be saved. But I can tell you, folks, this is a big leap. This is a terrifying leap when we begin to analyze the false church and determine who is that false church. And all that I can say is that if the membership of that church gives assent to false teachings, they're not saved. You can't be saved by believing a lie. And I'm not the judge of that. You're not the judge of it. Our church is not the judge of that. The only criteria that we use is the word that God has already given us. He's already told us who they are and what the marks are. Of, of those who don't believe in Christ and what they do and how you determine they are not true followers. Now the part that we don't deny in all of this is that people can be saved without perfect understanding. I think there might be some of you that are sleeping this morning. You don't perfectly understand what I've already said. But nobody has to have perfect understanding of theological points to be saved. If, if, if they did, that would leave me out too. Oh, you can know that you're saved. You can know that you're saved by Christ and it's by faith alone. But it may be possible that you don't really understand how that faith came to you. You may not understand how the Holy Spirit works and brought you to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You may not understand the order of how that happens. That's what we call the ordo salutis. A Latin term that means the order of salvation. And I'm afraid there are many of our Baptist people who are ignorant of the order of salutis. But we believe they are saved because they have faith in Christ alone. And so there are people without full understanding of this that will rob Christ of the essential glory that he deserves. And they are unfulfilled in the understanding of the majesty of the sovereign God. But I'm to tell you, I'm here to tell you that struggling Christians argue over this all of the time. This has never been solved. It's never been agreed upon by all stripes. But we don't accuse those who differ on the ordo salutis of not being saved people. If they believe that Jesus Christ alone saves, they're saved people. Now this text is always going to remain a problem until we get to heaven and we have the author of it sorted all out. Does it refer to the lost or does it refer to backslidden Christians? And I'll say that your salvation is not in danger because of your interpretation of these verses. But then I must also hasten to add 
that it does make a difference whether you know what they mean. It makes a difference to your consistency in Bible interpretations. And such things as the Ordo Salutis will make a difference in other scriptures. That if you're not right on them, there's going to be conflict in the interpretation of scripture. We argue for clarity in doctrine. So that we understand Christ better. And we know him better. And we know our own salvation better. It's as simple as the verses we read in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.17 That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. In Ephesians 4.13 Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so if you ask me, Pastor Smith, why do you keep on preaching all of these doctrinal messages? Why do you do that? And this is your answer. You need to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you must be able to rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. What? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, the next issue is in verse number 20. Behold... I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. I know that you've been patiently waiting for that blank on your outline. That's staring you in the face and you've been so anxious to get to that. And you may think, oh no, we finally got here. Now there's another 30 minutes for him to explain this point. Calm down. I'm not going to finish it this week. Easter is going to provide for us a wonderful opportunity to finish the exposition of this letter. We have discussed three previous points. The desire of the amen, the disaster they allowed, and the discipline they must accept. Now with a drum roll from a set of drums that we don't actually have, there's this number four, the door of admittance. The door of admittance. And I am here to tell you that verse number 20 is a theological quandary. It looks so simple on the surface. Jesus is standing at the door knocking. You've seen the pictures of that, haven't you? I'm sure some of you have. We're going to talk about it that a little bit in just a minute. But the picture that's painted from this verse has done much damage to the truth of Scripture. Now, before I get into that and talk about the true meaning of the scripture, which we'll do next week, let me just spend our last few minutes telling you what people think that it could mean. Verse number 20 is just a, a couple of verses away from chapter 4. Isn't that right? Not too far till we get to chapter 4. You already know of explaining what happens in chapter 4. Now, if you'll look at your Bible, in the white space between the end of chapter 3 and verse 22, and chapter 4, verse number 1, something happens. It's in this place, that white space that you see there, that we insert 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The rapture is in that white space. 
Now, since this text is so close to that point, it's assumed that when you see the door in chapter 3 and verse 20, that there must be much urgency here because this door stands for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, Jesus used the language of doors when he was talking about the last days in the Gospel of Mark. I'll just read that to you, and if you want to find it, Mark 13, verses 26 to 29. While you're turning pages, I'm going to be reading. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye, in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. So there's a door. And there's some say, well, this refers to the imminent return of Christ. But I say that that door, this door of Revelation 3.20 does not fit the hinge. Now in this text that I've just read, the church age is done. Immediately following that is the rapture. The church is going to be gone. And the door that you see in Mark number 13 is a door that's at the end of the tribulation. The suddenness of Christ's return is already removed because now this is seven years into the future. and that, that seven years must happen before the door of Mark 13 opens. The final gathering of God's elect in chapter 13 can't happen until all of his people are saved. And we know that there are many people that will be saved in the tribulation. So the door of Revelation 3.20 doesn't fit here. Then there are some who say, well, this must be the door of James 5.9. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. I like that one just a little bit better because I believe that there is always a temporal judgment in the lives of Christians. It's not a judgment of condemnation, but it's a judgment of, of fellowship, which we just, I just talked to you about in 1 John 1, 9. But others say... Now, this is the door of final judgment of unbelievers, that they must believe in Jesus Christ, and Christ is standing at that door, and when this door opens, there is the judgment of hell. Well, that door is even further away than the first one that I described. That one's a thousand seven years away from, from Revelation 3.20, so it can't be that door. And just for your reference, those interpretations won't fit our understanding of the end times and of judgment. Those are interpretations that say the millennium is now and the tribulation is now when we're living in it now it's just a spiritualized thing and we can't put the door of 320 on that hinge then still there's another interpretation that says no those two doors were warnings of judgment whereas this is a door of love this is the compassionate Christ who calls in tender love for the ones that he will save and the reference to that door is in the Song of Solomon. Now, can you find the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament? Not too many read the Song of Solomon, but I'll tell you, if you can find the Psalms, and then go back two or three books, to, uh, head towards the back, and there's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then the Song of Solomon. In 15 years as pastor, I've referred to the book often. We read it in congregational reading not long ago, but I've never preached a series from it. But I do want you to look now at chapter 5. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and in verse number 2, 
I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My love, my beloved put his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. That is a very mysterious passage. Shrouded in mystery, but I can tell you that it's a metaphor of Christ's love for his church. Now, I think we're getting really close now to the explanation because I do believe this is the door to the church. But as I finish now, I want to return to this horrible picture that was painted of Christ standing before a door. Now, that has other problems besides this one, but I'll just tell you about it. You've seen the picture. I'm sure many of you have. The picture is titled, Christ Standing at the Heart's Door. And therein lies the problem, because people will lift this verse out of its context and they use it for evangelism. And they say that this door represents the door of the human heart. And in the picture, Christ is standing before the door. And if you look very closely at the picture, you see that there is no doorknob on the door. And that's to say that Christ has no way in but for the door to be opened from the inside. And they say that Christ will not break down this door, and he will not enter this door, except the person who is behind that door will open it for them. All that sounds plausible, it sounds sentimental, but there's only one problem, and a big one. That picture's not in the Bible. And that picture is nowhere described in the Bible. And our theology is to be taken from the Bible, not an artist's imagination. Next week on Easter, I want to show you why it can't be true that Christ is held out because there is no doorknob on the outside. You see, the problem is not that Christ can't get in. The problem is the condition of the person that's on the other side of that door. Can I give you just a hint? The title of next week's sermon is The Resurrection of the Dead Heart. Christ is never held out by a locked door. And you thank him that he can't be kept out. Otherwise, those scriptures that we read in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians would be about sinners that are abandoned and have no hope of salvation. They would need to change their own hearts. They would have to arise from the dead before Christ could save them. So how will they be saved? Stay tuned for next week. It's Resurrection Sunday, and you'll get to be a part of that sermon because you're... Resurrection is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. He arose from the dead and his power over a dead sinner's heart is the promise that you can be saved. Rejoice that Christ alone has the power of salvation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do come to you and thank you for your word and for what we learn from it. Though the message today may have been a little strange to some and may have been somewhat hard to understand in some of the finer points of it, but let's just bring it down to this, that we have a Savior who right now will save anybody who comes to him in repentance and faith. 
that the door of the gospel of Jesus Christ is open. Sinners can hear, they can believe, and they can be saved. How we get to that point has not necessarily been the subject of the sermon this morning because we know that the only way that we will get to that point is because of the power of the Holy Spirit who works in a sinner's heart. So we do praise you and thank you, Lord, that you do save and that it makes no difference what we've done, how vile that we've been, what sins that we have committed. And though we may be so down on ourselves, the rare ones that are, so down on ourselves, we think, I've done too much, I can't be saved. It's not true. Christ's blood cleanses from all sin. Speak to someone's heart today, Lord. Open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, draw your people close in fellowship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.